Hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. John, uh, good to see you again. We actually had a long chat yesterday. Normally, we're kind of just catching up on the podcast, but we spoke for quite a while yesterday, so I'm more caught up yeah. with you with John. It was, it was really nice to catch up. It, you know, it's been summer, and we've both been running around doing various things, and it was just good yep. to catch up and uh, also just talk about things that uh, – Dan and I are involved with and uh, yeah because the podcast usually we have like 30 seconds and the guests like why are you catching up here yeah <laughs> anyway so hey John nice. you're, you're in uh you're in Geneva I'm in Prague uh and we were both in Austria I'm actually in Mio. I'm gonna like be a little more specific because Geneva is a different canton different state and I'm in the canton de Vaud we have a bit of rivalry so right. I'm in Mio canton de Vaud just for clarification okay Sorry. I'll make sure I say that new. <laughs> cool. So good to talk. We're talking today with Leanne Lavender. Um, if you check out leannelavender.com, we'll put a link. She uh, is a consultant working with schools around uh, storytelling and a few different things, which we're going to get into. Uh, and she's calling, she's calling in today from Canada. So Leanne, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me for this conversation. Cool. I mean, from my point of view, Leanne, I always like to start off with a bit of... Um, background just talk about your career i'm looking at linkedin obviously you work from some schools i'm always interested in the travel and the countries you've lived in so do you want to just talk a bit about you know where where you worked in international schools and what sort of stuff you did Absolutely. So I had uh, just such a wonderful experience for a couple of decades working in international schools. Uh, we started, I say we, my husband is also a teacher. We started teaching in Korea, South Korea um, at TCIS. We were there for four years. We went to Kenya and worked at IS Kenya in Nairobi for five. And then we were in Shanghai most recently at Concordia International School, Shanghai. Um, and then we relocated back to Canada in June of 2021. Our plans kind of changed because of COVID, like so many people experienced. And so we were planning to be international for longer, but it turned out to be the perfect window for us to return back and repatriate. I get to be really close to my two little grandbabies now, which is really wonderful. And also it was a great opportunity for me to step out of the classroom and out of my role as a service learning coordinator and start to do some independent work. So it's been a really great adventure. So I'm there's three I know I know I've been to Nairobi I've been to to South Korea all over a lot never been to Shanghai like what was your which place did you have the most fun which place did you enjoy living the most and can you sort of explain why you liked it Oh goodness which place, which place didn't you like so it must be one you didn't like I don't know. <laughs> Is, those questions are always so tricky to answer, aren't they? Because I think that each place has its charms and uh, and its challenges. You're absolutely right. I think that, um, I mean, Shanghai is an incredibly fun city. It's so international and cosmopolitan. And there's all of these like, you know, beautiful restaurants and glitzy things and also so much culture. So I think we were very busy and uh, and had a lot of fun in Shanghai. But but oh, my gosh, like Kenya, you cannot you cannot beat it for for the people and the landscapes and everything else there too. And, and Korea, I, I can't say enough good things about all three places, actually. Okay, got it. Very political answer. Cool. <laughs> so Leanne, one of the things that, uh, so you went back home, maybe tell us how you transitioned. That's an interesting, so you came back, as you said, many educators and many of our listeners who were stationed or had uh, positions in China 
there were a lot of challenges uh, with the quarantine and it was quite demanding. And I know some people even hadn't seen relatives or family members for more than one year. I even heard of up to three years. So that's quite challenging. So something happened at home and you decided, let me try this. Yes, exactly that. Um, we we had been uh, for the first year and a half of of the borders being closed in China. We were in Shanghai, and unable to. Well, we could have left, but we wouldn't have been able to return. And so, you know, we were we were working there, and um, we have three grown daughters, and at that point, just one little grandbaby. But after after a year and a half of not being able to see family, we were really looking forward to going home that summer. And in March, um, you know, the school found out that it was going to be another summer of no travel, which really meant another year of no travel. And um, the school was so fantastic. All of the schools were great in Shanghai at the time. They said, this is unprecedented, obviously. And if this changes your situation, we understand. And um, so I think we were the first people in to see our head of school the next morning to say, oh my gosh, we love it here so much, but we have to go. You know, there's, there's, we've got to get home. Well, and you, at that You looked into your apartment at all then. Did you have a lockdowns and things or you never had to do that? Well, we came home in June of 2021, so we missed the the following year. It was in 2022, last year, when there was the really strict lockdown in Shanghai, yeah. and we were already home by that point. So, um, so luckily, we missed that particular window. Um, it was really tough on people who were there. And a lot of colleagues, you're absolutely right, who just came home this summer, hadn't been home for three years. So, such a long time. Um, yeah. So you know how it goes with international teaching. We had missed that whole hiring window for the next year at that point in time. Yeah. And my husband and I both said, you know what, maybe this is the opportunity we've been looking for, silver lining, um, to do some creative things. And so we decided to just kind of go with it and launch into some independent work. And um, and it's been so rich and fruitful. I, you know, as I look back, I think, you know, you can't anticipate these things happening, but it's been uh, a really wonderful opportunity, really. So you did, uh, you were working and learning uh, services, community services, and now your focus is digital storytelling. Tell us the connection and the switch. Yes. Oh my gosh, absolutely. So I have always worn two hats at schools. I, I am an high, I'm a high school English teacher and I am passionate about stories and about all things related to the beauty of of language and words and what they can do in our lives. And, and so there's that hat. There's also the hat of service learning. So I've been a service learning coach and coordinator for many years as well. And in my work wearing those two hats, I could see that everything that I was working with in terms of the power of narrative and story had a big bearing on the work that I was doing in service learning and global citizenship as well. And that's where I had really been wanting to develop some different, um, you know, resources and ideas and and pathways for educators to merge those two things. And so again, when I had the opportunity to step out and do some independent work, I thought that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take this whole idea of harnessing the power of narrative and thinking, what does this look like when we apply that to our service learning and global citizenship programs? How can we amplify what we're doing through the power of stories? And so that kind of comes out in a, in a bunch of different ways. And I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about what that looks like, um, but that's kind of my background and how I merge those two things together interesting oh. what um service learning just before we jump into the storytelling i'm always interested do you want to just explain for people that maybe new to international schools or maybe their school doesn't have it like what is service learning and what what is the job of a of a service learning coordinator and is it and is it 
I'm just keen to people might be interested in this. Is, is it always a full-time job or is it quite often like a job, an, an extracurricular thing someone might do? Or can you, yes, start by explaining what it is and then how that job kind of looks because I'm sure there's interest in that. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And you're right. It does look, it looks different in a lot of different schools in that regard and different regions, depending on, you know, what the strategic kind of goals are around something like service learning or global citizenship. And so basically in a nutshell, service learning, service learning is really good teaching. It's basically allowing and, and, and helping educators to understand how to help their students take the knowledge and skills that they're learning in the classroom related to a specific unit or a series of units, and then apply those in a tangible way to to community assets and needs. Um, so as an example, you know, if a if a, a group of students is learning about something in an English class related to uh, structure and writing. Um, we, traditionally, we might have them just do something in class, like maybe they're going to, you know, write an essay or do a presentation, something like that. If we want to engage with service learning, we can take that learning and bring it out of the classroom in really amazing ways. So students can interview community members. They can start to interact in a variety of ways, doing interview surveys, trying to find out what's going on in the community related to what they're learning, and then demonstrate that learning in a way that involves direct action, indirect action, advocacy or research. Um, so we can take those summative assessments that might be a little more traditional um, and then turn them into something really dynamic and project-based and, and hands-on. Um, so in a nutshell, that's what service learning is. There's lots of tools and resources associated with it, um, but it's a way of building into your curriculum these, these windows for students to apply what they're learning and to meet community needs at the same time, local or global. Did you find it when you were in your three contexts where, you, you know, most of the students are international school students, maybe quite well off, uh, have a lot of opportunities that maybe in the local community is not reflected. What is that like trying to make those connections with the local community? That can't be easy. I love that question, John, because um, you're tapping right into storytelling for me with that question. Um, I think that when we often when we think about service, um, a lot of times people might think about community service, right? And they might think about typical things like, you know, you're going to go volunteer on a Saturday. Um, you know, maybe you're teaching English at one of the local schools, you know, that kind of thing. Definitely, those service programs can be very excellent opportunities for kids to learn and to engage with, you know, different people in their communities, for sure. Um, what I love about that type of partnership when we bring service learning into the mix is is we really want to be deliberate about how are we partnering with, with other people or other organizations, other parts of our communities in really open reciprocal ways so that we don't come at service with some of those um, harmful mindsets like, you know, I'm, I'm the helper and you're the person I'm helping um, and all of those kind of unequal pow power paradigms and whatnot. So I think um, to answer your question, it can be really challenging to connect with local communities in authentic and genuine ways and having those really important mindsets in place are key. Um, so finding those partnerships where you're going to be able to have a really reciprocal base to that and stories uh, through deep listening are a key component of making sure that your partnerships are going to fit into that really uh, positive purposeful space instead of maybe something that might be a little more tokenistic um, or something that's done quickly without a lot of reflection. 
I think that's interesting you bring up this concept of tokenistic because so often I think there is this sense or there is a frustration for international school educators that want to help local communities. There's always sometimes an economic gap, an economic divide, and making those connections, there can be cultural language issues. And I think sometimes it does feel a bit tokenistic. So it's kind of interesting that you're saying that your storytelling is a way of being doing service learning, but maybe not in that tokenistic way. Maybe give us an example, concrete example, where you are working, uh, you don't need to name the school, but you're using the story, uh, digital storytelling and storytelling in that manner that's not tokenistic with a school. Oh, thank you. That's such a fantastic question. Um, so one of the really incredible aspects of storytelling that I think is key here is, is deep and compassionate listening. And I use story circles and um, in a variety of different ways, using different protocols to facilitate the kind of conversations that can really serve as a foundation for a community partnership. So even right from the get-go, if you are thinking about partnering with an organization or, or a group of people in a community, um, how do you sit and have those really kind of um, deliberate conversations where, where each side, the school side and the partner side, where people are really listening to each other and beginning to understand one another and to see, okay, how might our needs be met by this partnership? So, um, you know, there's the school need of like, okay, we need our kids to have a way to, you know, learn these specific skills, et cetera, et cetera. And what is the partner's needs and how might those come together and how might that be again, like super reciprocal. So story circles and deep listening are an incredible incredible story tool to use to facilitate that. And I've seen that happen in numerous contexts with, with very um, positive outcomes, which is great. Um, then when you're working with a partner and you bring digital storytelling into the mix, which I'm very passionate about digital storytelling because it is so incredible for student learning and also for advocacy and for so many other things. If we engage our community partners with digital storytelling, so let's say we pull them in and we're like, okay, we're doing doing this work. Um, the students are collecting lots of different things via interviews and their work with the partner. And then they actually start creating podcasts and blog posts and videos and social media posts and all of these different things, depending on their purpose, um, and sharing those back out with the community and maybe even asking the community members to participate. Then we have this very rich exchange and a very deep connection that occurs between our student learners and the community partners. And so um, again, that can that can take a bunch of different shapes actually, depending on um, the age of the students that are involved and the type of community partner, um, but, but so rich. And I've, again, have lots of different examples of what that can look like with young learners, middle school learners, high school learners. Excellent. You know, John, I was, it's interesting, but you mentioned about it can be sometimes a bit tokenistic. So I, one thing I've seen with some international schools is quite often they'll do service learning, like they'll do a trip to Africa, for example, or they'll do a trip to Asia. And, you know, it's service learning, but it, it is also a fun trip that the kids are going to love. But then they don't do anything in their local community, like no contact at all with, you know, disadvantaged people in, in, in their area. I've seen that a lot. I wonder if that's something you've seen, Leanne, if you think that's something you... You try to encourage schools to to do things locally, or or, or, or feel free to disagree and you, you say I'm wrong. But I'm just based on what I've seen in the kind of the, the, especially here you know, the schools I know here. 
Mm-hmm. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's really important to um, <clears throat> try to be as sustainable as possible with what we do in regards yep. to surface learning and global citizenship and helping our students to look around them in their immediate community, their school community, their local community, um, and to and to see those communities with eyes that are open to what are the assets and needs here and how can I bring my interest, skills, and ca- talents to bear on what the needs are here right around me, um, that has the potential for a much deeper impact on a student than um, a one-off trip or experience. And I think we do have to be careful. I think a lot of schools are are changing their practices around that. Um, I think it was really common, you know, in years past to see that, you know, when there was like, let's say a week without walls or something like that, that students would go out and they would be international, you know, they'd be traveling internationally and going places and coming back. But as you say, with little follow-up and little reflection and, um, and that can actually create a lot more harm than good, right. In the communities that we're interacting with. So, um, there are some organizations that, that, that do that kind of thing. Well, um, so I would say like people have to do their research and really kind of think about what that looks like. But I think more schools are thinking now, wait a minute, um, let's really engage in, in the mindset work and in the deep work of trying to understand what is it like to be a global citizen in this place where I am right now, what does that look like? And I think that's really powerful when kids start looking, as you're mentioning, locally. So within their own school community, some schools are quite big. There are support staff, there are faculty, there are staff. And so there are so many things that maybe we don't notice or we're not aware of. And if we dig deep, these stories percolate up. One thing that I really liked you talking about was this idea of the digital storytelling and some of the things that kids were doing where they were you know doing a social media campaign doing interviews video that really is kind of what I, I mean and I think Dan can attest to this too is those are the skills that very much uh, connect with what a lot of needs if you work with a company the chances of having to do some multimedia or doing some social media those are really pertinent current skills and you know I think, so often we are flooded with stories around us, but much of it is misinformation. Mm. And not much, but a percentage is exaggerated. And talk to us a bit about how you navigate that as a storyteller. Are you framing certain parameters that people should work with when they're telling stories of an event or uh, a situation that they're interacting with? Mm. Oh, gosh, there's so much, uh, so many great threads there to pull on. John, thank you for such an excellent question. And I absolutely agree with you. The skills that are involved with digital storytelling are are so real, right? Um, if I think about, you know, digital citizenship and, and global competencies and digital competencies, these are skills that our students really, really need to navigate this world that they live in, both virtual and real, right? Um, what is real news? What is not? How do I know? How do I evaluate sources? Once we become active with digital storytelling, those are questions that naturally surface and teachers can do a very thorough job in helping students understand and build the skills so they can be really, really engaged digital citizens um, operating in a a lot of different ways with, with conversations online and in person. So I think that that is really, really, really key. Um, I, I can give you an example. 
So I worked with an amazing colleague at uh, a school in Austin, and she's a grade five teacher at this amazing school, St. Andrew's Episcopal School. And she wanted her students, her social studies students, to really do something like this, where they could grapple with some of these things, become better at understanding things like, like sources and, and real news, but also engage with the community. So she and a teaching partner decided, okay, let's take language arts and social studies, and let's build a digital storytelling platform where our students will be able to basically convey so many different things about what they're learning all year long related to three sustainable development goals and their school's initiatives around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And so they spent some time at the beginning of the year and they helped the students get trained in, okay, what is citizen journalism, right? What does this look like and how does this relate to what we're learning in the classroom? And they helped the kids understand some basics like how to take a good photo and how to write for an online audience, et cetera. And then the kids just took off with this and their website is absolutely amazing because for each learning unit that they have, the kids are generating a diverse array of digital media around their learning, but they're engaging their community in the conversation of what they're learning and why that learning is, is really important for local and global context. And it has, it has blown up at their school. Like so many other, other classes are involved, other students are involved. The adults are, of course, very keen to be involved, but it has sparked such an incredible rich dialogue, all because of digital storytelling. So, um, so that was a big answer to your question, but I think yeah, it's so key to think about all of those aspects. <laughs> it's interesting, Leanne, you mentioned about the um, Office of Sustainable Development Goals, and I, I see on, on your website, you're doing some work with Inspire Citizens, which... Uh, He's got, I was actually, funnily enough, my, my sort of origin story, I was involved, obviously it's tragic about Steve. Uh, you know, Steve died last year, he was an amazing guy. I was. I met Steve and Aaron in, in Taiwan, actually, when we were just starting, and we had some, we were in a craft beer bar in Taichung with a guy called uh, Dave Freeman, who we've got to get on the pod. He's a super interesting guy, John. I've told you about him. He speaks fluent Chinese. He keeps saying he's going to come and then never does, but he's done so many things. Um, <laughs> They're chasing uh, down. Yeah. But yeah, I was there when they were discussing sort of starting the business and everything. And it's great um, to see to see how, how it's grown. Like, are you are you working with them as like a, as a consultant, or are you kind of using their curriculum, or what's your what's your cooperation with those guys? Yeah, I, I'm so excited to partner with Inspire Citizens, and this is one of the the great things about what I'm doing now is I I have all of these different amazing partnerships that come together. You know, Kathy Berger K, Asa. I'm doing a lot of work with Asa, uh, Peer Sphere with Michael Iannani and you and Bailey. Like, just so many great people to work with. And um, yeah, Inspire Citizens is just like, it's it's a heart space for me um, because I, I too, I, I know Steve and Aaron have known and, and again, so, so such ripple effects uh, with the loss of Steve in the global citizenship community all around the world. Um, just still everyone yeah, just so hurting from that, right? Um, but the work of Inspire Citizens is so uh, powerful because, you know, to watch Aaron in action, he goes into a classroom and he works with, you know, a group of teachers and helps them redesign curriculum and it's just like magic you know watching what he does so my role is, I, I mean I, he's one of my big heroes I, I love what he does and so I actually work with them as a storyteller um, so I actually interview a bunch of teachers and students that they work with and tell stories for them and uh, and also do some facilitation as well so it's, it's awesome okay cool that's, that's, that's great to see 
Leanne, stories are part of our culture. They're part of our upbringing. I mean, uh, you know, I'm sure Dan's reading stories to his kids. I know I read stories to my kids. They're adults. So I'm not reading as many, but indirectly we tell stories of family and events and things like that. It's really nature for humans to share stories. And, and it goes back to the, you know, dawn of time. How do you feel kids are relating to stories, those verbal oral stories, when they're immersed in this very kind of uh, instant, short, 30 snippet, thirty second snippets of stories on TikTok or Instagram reels, which are each one is a story in its own right. But what are some of the creative tensions you're seeing as you work with kids and asking them to construct stories that are meaningful, that are purposeful, that are researched when they see a lot of the modeling is a TikTok of 30 seconds? Oh, that's such a great question, too. Um, I absolutely agree, especially, you know, I'm a high school English teacher. So, of course, I'm like bought in right to the idea that stories are the way we've always tried to make sense of the world. It's how we they stories are the way we've tried to answer all the big questions. You know, why are we here? What does it all mean? <laughs> I mean, they really try. Stories are the only way we have to try to, to mine in there and to try and figure all of those things out. Um, and actually, uh, there's a great quotation from Wired Magazine that I always quote um, with some of my digital storytelling courses and whatnot, because they say that with all of this new technology and all of the, these new online platforms that we have for communication, that it has ushered in this new golden age of storytelling. And when I first encountered that, I was like, huh, I hadn't thought about it that way, but it's absolutely true, right? So, you know, we've got our traditional storytelling methods and they're still incredibly relevant and powerful. I mean, who doesn't love to curl up with a good novel? Who doesn't like to, you know, hear some amazing oral story that's passed down around the campfire? Everyone loves that. But now we have all of these new digital ways of telling stories. And in fact, if we think about the, the benefit of that for students, I think that, that the power of narrative is there no matter what form, right? So we do respond to narrative. We are people of narrative. So if that's narrative in short form or long form, the, the power of what that does in our brains and how we respond emotionally and what we remember is all there. So so being able to tell stories in shorter bits on social media, things like TikTok, um, if kids can tell their stories that way and it makes them excited and it brings them into a learning space, that's incredible, right? Um, and it actually builds skills so that the other types of storytelling are more accessible to them as well. So I love this idea that all of our technology and our digital spaces have actually opened up more storytelling. There's more stories now maybe than there's ever been before because of what we have access to. Oh, I, I can't agree with you more. And I just think of all the reels that people are watching, just the, the kilometers and kilometers of content uh, that you know, we're all engaging with. I think. Are you, for are you, me, are you on I, TikTok? Do you want out of interest? I'm curious. Do you, are you on TikTok? I'm a lurker. I am You're lurker, yeah. I don't even lurker. have. I don't even have a TikTok account. I've, I just. I just stayed away. I, I find have, it. Well, I, I have YouTube Shorts. I have Instagram Shorts. I just. I've got too much of that stuff already. You know. I find TikTok is, you know, once you go in, it's amazing how quickly you spend time doing nothing. The algorithm and, is, is uh, amazing. I just, because uh, I have a son who's an artist and he's involved with TikTok, so it's more to kind of keep up with what he's doing. Uh, but I definitely find, you know, what about your children? Are they uh, doing these reels, uh, Dan, and stories? No, I mean, not, not yet. Yeah, we'll keep them away from that. But they, um, 
they watch YouTube kids a lot. You know, you, my wife hates it because it's just, there's a lot of really just crap on there. You know, like we try, <laughs> I try to keep that computer time. If they're going to be on a computer, they're playing a game or doing something like, you know, involving some thinking. I'm, I try to keep them off YouTube kids because it's like, you know, they watch one thing and then maybe it's, they have these kind of, 3D rendered car crashes, and they'll keep watching more of these car crashes. My son, like, he can just he can spend all day watching car crashes. You know? I'm like, it's just not a, not a positive thing for him to be watching all day. You know? <laughs> no, no, no. And uh, so, Leanne, you have on your website, which is wonderful, you, you kind of have a structure, right? Because you talk about how stories can have an impact, mm. and you have these kind of components. They're all together, six of them, if I'm correct, right? Talk a bit about this idea of SEL, which is uh, and the DEIJ, because I think that's mm. both of those things are very current right now. Maybe unpack that of the. So I just want to remind our audience: it's LeanneLavender.com, and when you go in there, there's there's a graphic how stories can create impact, and it's the idea of bringing cohesion with cell and DEIJ. Mm-hmm. Maybe talk about what cell is and DEIJ. Oh my goodness, yes. And before I do that real quick, John, can I pick up on what Dan just said um, about kids watching watching and consuming content? One of the things I love about bringing digital storytelling into our spaces as educators is helping our kids navigate, what does it look like when I'm a passive consumer? What does it look like when I'm a content creator? And how can I take more of my screen time and turn it into the creation time? Because then it's very generative and, and amazing, right? Um, so I, I just had to pick up on that little thread yeah. too before I drop it. Um, But yes, social, emotional learning and well-being, as well as diversity, equity, inclusion. um, I feel that stories can really be a cohesive glue for some of these um, important strands in our schools. And our schools are busy places, right? We've got a lot of things that are going on. We've got a lot of really important initiatives and strategic goals that we want to work towards. And students are at the heart of that. So if I think about the power of stories, particularly related to SEL, students can often feel um, overwhelmed. They can also feel sometimes not seen or heard. When we give them spaces to tell their stories and share their stories, either through listening circles or through digital stories they can create and share in their classes or in other contexts, we give them an opportunity to be seen and heard and to engage. Um, And so in, in a very kind of foundational way, the windows that we open up for our students, all students to be seen and heard through stories can be really key in helping them to feel more balanced and to feel more emotionally and, and socially grounded. Um, And so that's one way that stories can help with that particular aspect. And likewise, with diversity, equity, and inclusion, when we look around at our at our schools um, and our communities and our classrooms, whose voices are are we not hearing? What does what does that look like? What are those gaps looking like? And how can we invite more voices um, into the conversations that we're having? What might that look like? Um, story circles are a wonderful way to invite people in, but also again, storytelling initiatives, whether they are in the classroom or more school wide, can really start to bring a bigger view to who is being, um, who's speaking, who's listening 
listening and what that looks like in terms of how we're thinking about ourselves and our community. Um, and so I, I know different, different situations where let's say a classroom is running a storytelling project in relation to a unit that they're, that they're doing, and maybe they're focusing on the local staff at the school and they're, they're interviewing the local staff. They're finding out more about who they are, what they value, what they know, what wisdom they bring to the community. All of a sudden, when we're sharing those stories, um, we're honoring so much the people in our spaces that maybe we wouldn't otherwise, but we're also inviting all kinds of knock-on effects in terms of how different people are seen and valued in our communities. Um, so I think that stories have a very, a very deep and powerful role in both of those two initiatives in our schools, for sure. I love yeah. that, that you bring up the idea of uh, valuing the people that are working around our classrooms and the people that are supporting the schools, uh, especially when in many international schools, there are cultural differences and economic differences between the two parties. In other words, the international educators, of course, are earning a certain salary, have certain conditions compared to maybe sometimes the local uh, people that are, of course, getting a salary, but it's definitely very different and maybe are in different cultural and economic and social situations. I just think that's so powerful. And I'm, I'm getting a feeling from what you're sharing with Dan and I, this is a thread in your storytelling. You really, I think if we asked you to come to our imaginary school, the Dan and John school, you would really want us to kind of focus on local more than global. Mm. Well, first of all, I would love to come to the Dan and John School. I think it would be a pretty cool place to be. Um, so that would be great. The only two students. And I, I, I think so. I, the more I do work in this realm, particularly when it comes to uh, the ideas around critical theory and um, critical service learning and global citizenship, which is a whole other conversation, but a really important one because there's a lot of um, theories that help. Uh, at the academic level to consider, again, what harm um, are, would we be creating in these spaces and how can we do this work in ways that are, that are again, positive, purposeful, and, and you know, really well thought out. And so I think local, it just makes so much sense because, again, if we're thinking about helping our kids to think as global citizens, no matter where they are, they're going to probably move and be in different places a lot in their lives, right? And so what does it look like for them to take that idea with them that no matter where I am, I can have impact, right? And no matter where I am, I can see my community with openness and with a receptivity and with a curiosity that helps me to engage in authentic ways. So I'm not going to bring my assumptions into this mix. I'm not going to come to the table and, and want to like hold power. You know what I mean? What does it look like to be very open and humble and to um, act in ways that are, are sustainable? And so I think that the local aspect is very important. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Leanne, I've got, I'm interested, um, obviously, I'm always interested in the entrepreneurial side of things. Um, talk us through, like, what, uh, how hard was it to, to start a business from scratch? Like, mm -hmm. how long did it take to get your first, you know, your, your first income? Because obviously, you've got, to, you've got to make some money out of this. And, 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 and how's it going? Like, I'd be great just to talk through the entrepreneurial journey, because obviously, people often paint it as, as, as easy. And I, I know it isn't, having done it, it started a couple of businesses myself. I know John's, John's doing some entrepreneurial ventures right now as well. Like, how did it go in the beginning? How long did it take you to actually to, to, to make some income? Were you, were you working on it part-time when you were still in the school or did you start afterwards? Like, what, What's the, the origin story of this business? 
Yeah. Oh, I, I love this because I'm very keen on entrepreneurial uh, ideas and stories as well. And so thank you for asking that. I kind of came into this um, period of my life with my eyes wide open because my husband and I, before we were teachers, when we first got married, we, were, we got married right out of university and we were really foolish because we had this dream that we wanted to start a community newspaper. We both had background as journalists and we were like, wouldn't it be amazing to run a community newspaper? We didn't know anything about running a business. You know, we were 23 years old, absolutely clueless. And so we ran this business for 10 years, but the first two years was, it was like trial by fire because we didn't know anything. Accounts receivable, what's that? I mean, like we didn't know anything. And so we, we put self-employment behind us when we transitioned into teaching and, and we were so excited to become teachers. I mean, it was just our life's kind of, you know, journey where, where it's like the thing for us in terms of passion. So when I was thinking about leaving the classroom and starting into an entrepreneurial space again, I was like, mm-hmm, I remember, <laughs> I remember what this is like. Yeah. <laughs> um, both the good and the bad, right? And so I was really lucky because in the first year that I launched into solo work, I was still doing part-time virtual work for Concordia. And that was really awesome because it kind of gave me a base where I could still do my work for Concordia and then I could start to build my independent work as well. That's and um, that was a really big help for the first year. And then I think in this field of global citizenship, there are just so many schools that want to be doing better, right? Like it's embedded in so many schools, mission and vision statements, something related to active global citizenship. And so I think there's so much need um, that it's actually, it's, it's been, it's been, I've been really lucky. It's been easy to connect and partner and do deep work in this area. And so I'm, I'm really just, I'm thrilled about it, but yeah, I went into this kind of going, Ooh, there's going to be some ups and downs and, and certainly yeah. like, like all all life choices and journeys, I guess that's true. But with entrepreneurial aspects, uh, yeah, you ride a certain roller coaster, don't you? <laughs> Lee, Def, why, is there, why is there such a need for your role? Oh, that's a great question. I think that a lot of schools are uncertain, uh, like they, they know what they want to do when it comes to active global citizenship and service learning, but they don't always know how to do it. And Inspire Citizens actually has got a really great title for this because they've turned it into a verb. And some of what they do is called how to global citizen, right? And they do incredible work with schools in this regard to get like strategic plans so that schools can go, we want this. We don't know how to do it. Okay, here's a recipe. And then I think there's just a lot of schools that need that helping hand to say, yeah, we want to go on this journey. We don't know how. We need someone to help kind of frame it out for us. Um, and so that ends up being a lot of what I do is partnering with schools and helping them to see like, okay, in what way do you want to approach this? And, and how do you want to build out your iteration of what it means to be an active global citizen? And how do stories play into that? Um, and so I've got some great work coming up with the International School of Kenya, where they're really keen to marry storytelling with their uh, program that they're building for service learning. And so it's really that's I think a lot of schools are in that position where they're like, we know what we want. We know what we want our graduates to be. We just need some help to get there. Got it. Very interesting. 
Yeah, and I think often that's what uh, consultants or people like yourself that have experience working in international schools and uh, can bring because you understand the dynamics and the frameworks. You've been within the organization as a participant and an educator. And so often there is a lot of good intention and I think all schools have great intentions, but so often there's so many things that get in the way, the busyness of the day or just, you know, turnover or somebody has a good idea and there's no follow through. And I think what I'm hearing is when you're working with schools, you're kind of a guide on the side. Would that be a way of describing your role? I think that's a great way to describe my role. And um, I think that's always how I've been as a, as a teacher as well. If I think about my time in the classroom, I've always really um, kind of approached, you know, learning in that way where it's like, okay, we're, we're creating together. We're going to co-create. We're going to co-learn. I'm going to bring my, you know, expertise to the table in every way that I can. But ultimately, I want this to be something where, you know, the people that I'm working with um, feel deeply invested and they feel like this is something that that they have have helped to create and and you know participate in so that's been really important to me so guide on the side i think is a, a great way of putting it <laughs> fantastic um john that's uh i think kind of getting close to wrapping up time for me obviously i've got i've got to jump on my call any any final questions or anything from you john no, I, Leanne, I just think maybe is there any uh, advice or any thoughts? You know, we, we've entered, Dan and I have done a lot of uh, podcasts about just the accelerated change that's around us, of course, AI, and there's just so many things going on. And I think there's something very uh, uh, heartwarming about focusing on storytelling. So do you have any kind of things that you think schools should be reflecting upon? We're at the beginning of the year. It's the end of September. Uh, the year is ahead. Any thoughts before we kind of wrap up? Yes, two things immediately spring to mind. So I'm really glad you mentioned AI, John. Um, I think that digital storytelling is a wonderful way to help teachers understand how to navigate assessments in the era of AI so that you have authentic student work coming back to you that is process driven. And so there are many different things that I could offer um, on my blog. There's a bunch of different things there, but I would say if anyone's interested in learning more about how to take assessments and turn them into digital storytelling options that really create this authentic student work that's not that's basically you're creating assessments that are uncheatable right <laughs> um digital storytelling is really good for that um so i i think that's one thing and the other thing i would say is don't be afraid to dive in. Like sometimes I think with digital storytelling, teachers feel nervous because maybe they haven't ever done a podcast or maybe they've never made a video or maybe they don't know how to blog and they worry about that. My experience and the experience of many teachers I've worked with is the students love when they see you learning new things and when they see you taking risks and co-creating. And so they love for you to be in that space. And often the students end up being our best mentors in this regard because they know a lot about technology and they can help us. And so if you're worried about starting anything with digital storytelling, my advice would be dive in and, um, and maybe get help where you need, of course, but don't be afraid because you'll learn and you're going to have a lot of fun in your students will be deeply engaged definitely Fantastic. john and i recorded a, an episode about how to do a podcast actually it's quite a we should we should put a link in it but we actually talked about how we did it you know i mean obviously we're not we're not joe rogan you know but we but you know we, we, we have a respectable over a thousand people listening a month you know which, which is fantastic for us you know um uh 
and, and I, I think, yeah, there's so much, there's so many ways people can incorporate storytelling. You're right. I mean, there's so many new types of media. Podcasting is just one thing that didn't exist a few years ago, you know, and it's, and it's surprising that even with a super niche podcast, if, if you, if you keep it going and, you know, and you're not sort of looking to make money out of it, um, then you, you can really build up a big audience, you know? Actually, I just on my blog this week, Dan had uh, posted an interview with Trisha Friedman, who is an amazing podcast guru. Like she just knows yeah. so much about podcasting and she does so many podcasts herself. And so I had the, the great joy of interviewing her earlier this summer because I'm a big fan of podcasting. And I think that it's a wonderful way for teachers to allow students to demonstrate learning, right? Like podcasting is just is just wonderful. So yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, And we actually had the pleasure of talking to Trisha and Jeff uh, on that topic a few months ago. So uh, that's always nice to see that uh, they're getting traction. I just want to remind our audience with every podcast that we have, we have show notes. And Leanne has done an absolutely wonderful job of putting resources and links. So I think that's a great place to go, of course, to our website. Uh, you want to go to Leanne Laver Lavender Storyteller. It's leannelavender.com. But definitely look at the show notes. And I just, and Dan and I were just looking at some of our stats. Just want to thank everybody that has kind of followed us on LinkedIn. It's been a, a quite a, a, an amazing growth over the summer. And we're humbled and very much appreciate uh, the audience's support and your comments, especially those people joining us via LinkedIn. Yeah, Sorry, really. I mean, I, I've, I've Shame to say, I had no idea we even had a LinkedIn page. And John said, "Look at how popular LinkedIn page is getting." I'm like, "Oh, great! I got a LinkedIn page. Like, did I set that up?" And uh, it's great. You know? <laughs> we actually set up a long time ago, and I think it was yeah. dormant for a while. But this summer seems like uh, there's traction. Leanne, thank you so much. It's just been so wonderful to hear your story and also sharing some of the insights that I think are really important. And for me, I'm walking away about how important that local connection and looking within before you look without. I think for me, that's what I'm walking away with and the uh, wisdom that you share today. But thank you again and uh, look forward to keeping in touch and looping back at some point. Oh, thank you so much to both of you, John and Dan. And yes, I, I would love to continue these conversations. And there's so many different spur lines I think we could <laughs> we could travel when it comes to stories. And I just I hope everybody just has a wonderful year telling stories and sharing stories and hearing stories this year. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks, Leanne. Thank you, Leanne.